when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In our first big episode of 2019, we'll be looking back at probably the most dramatic political week in recent times. The meaningful vote, the confidence vote, the cross-party talks and what it all means for Brexit and the Conservative Party. I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's top team of George Parker, our political editor, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, political columnist Robert Shrimsley and correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning or leave us a kind review on the iTunes store. And apologies to those listeners who missed us last week. We are definitely back in action and not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. So this was the week it all kicked off in Westminster. Theresa May finally brought her Brexit deal to a meaningful vote in the House of Commons. And for her her efforts, she was handed a historic loss by many of her own MPs. This was duly followed by a no-confidence motion tabled by Jeremy Corbyn in the government, which went down party lines and kept the Prime Minister in office. So, once again, we find ourselves in Brexit stalemate. George Parker, it has been a long (laughs) week back with lots of action and lots of late night in the comments. Let's just begin with the meaningful vote. This was essentially Theresa May putting her deal to MPs. It was meant to happen in December. She delayed it for no discernible reason. It doesn't really achieve anything. Everyone was talking about how big the loss was going to be. Nobody expected her to win. She didn't win and she didn't come anywhere near winning with 230 MPs voting against it, which to most observers has has killed the deal stone dead. Well, you would have thought so. It was the biggest defeat ever suffered by a sitting prime minister in history. And it exceeded, I think, most people's expectations. Some people are speculating it might be 100. Some people thought it might be 200. But in the end, it was 230. And it was a vast defeat for the prime minister. And you would think it would kill it stone dead. But it's been odd in the days that followed that defeat that Theresa May almost a bit like the Black Knight in the Monty Python uh, sketch sort of says, or a bit of mere scratch and it seems to be determined to plough on to try to salvage something from the wreckage of the deal. But um, it was a, a seismic moment at Westminster, but I don't think anyone quite has understood what it really means yet because, like you said, I was down on College Green, the bit of grass outside Westminster where all the broadcasters were, and I bumped into Chris Leslie, who's a big Remainer, and Bernard Jenkin, a big Brexiteer, and both of them were delighted with the result. And the thing is, nobody quite understands what, where it's going to lead. Is it going to lead us over the edge of a hard, hard Brexit at the cliff edge on March 29th, as Bernard Jenkins thinks? Or is it going to lead us down the route towards a much softer Brexit or indeed no Brexit at all? Nobody quite understands where it's going from here. 
Because as our colleagues over at The Times would say, this is not normal. Because when you look at the level of that defeat, normally if the Prime Minister is defeated on a major policy issue, say a budget or foreign policy issue, that would be it for their premiership. But thanks to the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which means that this wasn't a confidence issue, and thanks to the fact that the Eurosceptics moved against Theresa May back in December and failed to get rid of her, she's still going really and it's very hard to see what would remove her from office at this point so that's one of the reasons why we're in this odd situation where the major issue of the day has been defeated yet she is still there but the one thing that you really feel we need now is flexibility and Theresa May doesn't really have much of that. That's not part of her political armoury is it? I mean people admire her for her dogged determination and her refusal to give up and all the rest of it but I suppose what you really need at this point is flexibility and ability to reach out to others, to take in new ideas, to be bold, to be imaginative. None of those are things that Theresa May does. And we'll probably talk about this in a minute, but she's now reaching out supposedly to members of other parties. I mean, that's something she's never done in her entire political career. And it's hard to imagine her taking it very seriously now. So, Alex Barker, what's the view from Brussels about what happened this week? That essentially we've spent two years negotiating this deal, and I'm sure the EU was told by Theresa May and her European advisor, Ollie Robbins, this deal will get through the House of Commons. Trust us, stay with us, let's get this over the line, and we'll be fine to find out actually it can't get through the House of Commons, which is what MPs have really been saying for months now, but the Prime Minister just didn't really seem to listen. No, exactly. And this was a big event here as well. The public line, and, you know, it will hold, I suspect, is, you know, this is Theresa May's responsibility. There's no way that you can rescue her. They look to the prime minister as their negotiating partner, but they see someone without a mandate, without a deal that is able to be passed. Um, and they basically decided to sit back because to do otherwise would be to accentuate all the divisions that might arise between the 27 member states over what to do next. It's a pretty big blow to an effort that's taken two years to construct. And in many ways, the EU were hugely satisfied with the result of this negotiation. They had managed to show themselves to be incredibly united, more united than any negotiation I can remember in my time in Brussels, having squared off almost all their interests in that withdrawal agreement, but ended up with this almost like a Pyrrhic victory, potentially, where they they got everything and then lost it at the same time because they can't have it ratified. And that has started quite a debate about what to do next among the diplomats here. It's speculative. It hasn't kind of filtered through into official government positions. But everyone is thinking, what do we do when the UK comes for an extension? They're absolutely certain that will happen. Do we play it long? Do we play it short with a short extension up to July? How much do we make of the potential for the UK to stay in the EU? That, for the first time, is becoming a bigger and bigger factor in how member states are thinking about the tactics they will apply to this. But for the next few weeks, what we'll really see is the EU hunkering down, saying, look, come to us, Theresa May, when you can demonstrate a way to build a majority in Parliament. They're not going to take her word for it. 
because from London there seems to have been some slightly different responses from different EU figures. Obviously, Jean-Claude Juncker wants to get this deal through. It's part of his legacies. I'm sure Michel Barnier does as well. But if you compare that to uh, Emmanuel Macron, who has said very different things, saying, well, this is the harsh reality of Brexit finally being exposed. This was always going to happen. It does raise the question at some point, you know, this deal, if Theresa May tries to bring this deal back, unless it is significantly modified, it will be defeated again. Because if you find some codicil or if you smooth off the edges of it, you might get another 50 or 100 MPs, but you're not going to get another 230 MPs to get this thing over the line. So where do you think the real balance of power is between those slightly different noises we've seen this week? One thing's for sure. There was a plan to make some surgical amendments to basically dress up the old package and take it back to the parliament. That's off the table now. I mean, they've seen those numbers like everyone else and thought something different has to happen for this to ever pass through parliament. And it's not actually something they think they can achieve through changes to the content. It has to come through that kind of consensus building that you see in many European parliaments, but that's a bit alien to Westminster. I know Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, was visiting various uh, dignitaries in in Brussels at various times, and they were surprised by his kind of uh, not particularly detailed grasp of some of the issues around Brexit. And at one stage, Jeremy Corbyn was asked, do you have the prime minister's mobile number? And Corbyn looked back at this European with a kind of as if he had come from a different galaxy. I mean, that is so out of the ordinary for British politics. And yet for some European uh, political systems, it's absolutely run of the mill. And they expected Britain to build a consensus first and then come to Brussels to to do the deal. Not once it had failed in London, uh, only then to work out what might actually pass. Yeah, it's very interesting what Alex is saying there about the way that the calculations that are being made in Brussels are changing uh, since the vote on Tuesday about how they respond. Because I think Theresa May's instincts are still to go back to Brussels and try to get some sort of cosmetic change to the Irish backstop and some sort of legal codicil. But it's plainly not going to cut it. So if the EU says, look, there's not much point in helping you here because it's not going to work, that actually then plays into the hands of all those people, the vast majority of pro-European MPs who make up the House of Commons, start pushing for a whole load of softer Brexit options. And we've been through them many times before, haven't we, on this podcast, the Norway option, the customs union, or even, as Alex was hinting there, the possibility that if the road keeps being blocked in Brussels, do all roads then start to lead towards a second referendum? So let's touch, George, briefly on the no confidence vote. So Jeremy Corbyn has said for a long time he would put forward a motion of no confidence in the government at the right time. And following the defeating the meaningful vote, I guess that was the right time. But it was a rather meaningless exercise, but one I guess he had to go through because the DUP, the Democratic Unionists, who prop up Theresa May's government, they are still sticking by the prime minister. So they voted with her. And so the government survives. And, you know, you can keep bringing confidence motions as much as you want, but it really doesn't seem to have changed anything and won't change anything until the DUP change their minds on supporting Mrs May because the government is there, the government will still be there and and, and, and that's that's where we're at with this. It again is just kind of stalemate. Well, yeah, I mean, it was interesting actually watching that debate unfold on Wednesday, another momentous occasion. I think it was the first conf- no confidence vote in 
the government for I think it's over 20 years wasn't since it? 1993 I think yeah, yeah so it's sort of you know in any other week that would have been a massively historic uh, moment but actually as the day unfolded you could see why Jeremy Corbyn had been so reluctant to move this vote of no confidence because first of all it allowed the Conservative Party to get back together and get behind the Prime Minister there was a sparkling speech at the end by Michael Gove the Environment Secretary where he really laid into Jeremy Corbyn had the Tory benches cheering him on um, and at the end of the day, you say it achieved nothing because it showed that Theresa May still has that majority thanks to the DUP. I think the interesting thing will come further down the line if Theresa May is forced to tack towards the centre on Brexit. The question of whether Jeremy Corbyn then keeps pushing no confidence votes as a way of testing the resolve Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party, whether some of them might do the kamikaze thing of voting to bring down their government. Now, some people are muttering about that. Some people discount it. It's hard to know how many might do it. But certainly that would be one option that Jeremy Corbyn might, might want to test. Absolutely. Now, Alex, the key thing people are talking about in Westminster now is, as George was saying, is tacking towards a softer Brexit. Because if Theresa May tries to take a harder approach, then it doesn't see how that achieves anything. It's not going to win Labour MPs and it's not going to win any moderate Conservatives. In fact, it may lose them. So the only thing you can see that would really get through the House of Commons would be a permanent customs union. And that would be rewriting the non-binding political declaration to try and win more support. What's the view on Brussels if that would, if that is possible in any way? Oh, it's absolutely possible. Um, it's very easy. It's non-binding. It's a political declaration. It's pretty short. They would be happy to see the UK uh, in a closer relationship if Theresa May was willing to move her red lines. So that that is completely deliverable. I think they they're more sceptical about whether it really be decisive in, in Westminster, which is the, the important point. I mean, you could move towards a customs union, but that would, A, be non-binding, so it's all going to be negotiated after Brexit anyway. Uh, you'd still need a backstop for Northern Ireland. You'd have some Northern Ireland-specific arrangements that the DUP hate and voted against. And if it was some kind of you know, loose alliance between uh, the Prime Minister and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, they would also be pressing for lots of things that the Labour Party not particularly keen on. State aid restrictions, I mean, they're very strict. The, the deeper a customs union you negotiate, the, the more of these level, level playing field provisions they will include. And some of them Jeremy Corbyn likes, some of them he doesn't. There would be other issues that arise, like possibly budget contributions, things like that. I mean, some of that can be fudged. But ultimately, you're building around the backstop that already exists in the the withdrawal agreement. You're making it a bit fuller and fleshed out and to allow for a better flow of goods, really. But what does that solve in Westminster? And um, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads about that here. It's quite interesting, actually, as we run through these different options and describe the complications and the problems and are they going to work at, at Westminster? Are they going to deliver the majority for Theresa May? You start to wonder whether this may all be leading in a direction we haven't really discussed very much before, which is this idea of a general election, which people are now starting to talk about as a possible way out of this morass. Uh, Theresa May says it wouldn't be in the national interest. I seem to recall her saying something very similar before the 2017 election that she wasn't going to call. But you can imagine after a few more weeks or months of discussions in airless rooms at Westminster and the mood getting worse and worse, there'll also be a human craving to get out into the fresh air put a deal directly to the British people, try to get a new mandate, try to change the parliamentary maths. 
maybe a desperate measure, but it is something that people are now starting to talk about. The issue with a general election, though, George, is when you look at the opinion polls, it would probably return a very similar result in terms of Parliament. The Tories are about six points ahead, which is remarkable in itself. Jeremy Corbyn is still polling behind his party. But once you entered a campaign, it would probably be very similar to 2017, that Theresa May would talk about Brexit and delivering on Brexit and the referendum. Jeremy Corbyn would talk about public services, NHS and education, and it would be a question of leadership. And once again, the country would probably just shrug its shoulders and would be back exactly where we are with the added issue for the Conservative Party, which we're coming on to later, that a whole load of Conservative MPs would not stand on the manifesto of Theresa May's deal. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of problems. And I was speaking to someone very close to her saying, what is the point? You wouldn't change the parliamentary maths, as you were saying we come back with exactly the same thing. You wouldn't refresh the Conservative Party because almost exactly the same MPs would stand and be re-elected. So what on earth would the point be? So, look, I mean, there are lots of very strong arguments against it. I suppose one different dynamic of an election in this context might be that unlike 2017 when Labour was campaigning as a Brexit party, you might find it a slightly different dynamic this time round. Now, Jeremy Corbyn says that he would fight an election promising to negotiate a better Brexit deal in Brussels and with all the unicorns we know that are attached to that plan. But before you get to that point, they'd have to approve a manifesto. And as we know, there are a large number of Labour members, particularly Jeremy Corbyn's Praetorian Guard Momentum, who are very strongly pro-European and will put a lot of pressure on him to campaign for a second referendum. So you could see an election campaign where Theresa May was offering a responsible Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn was offering the prospect of reversing Brexit, which, you know, there'll be a dividing line. It'll be a desperate measure with very unpredictable consequences, but there are no great options at the moment, are there? And finally, Alex, really about what you think might happen next. When we look back at the end of 2018, all three of us agreed that Brexit Day would be delayed in some form and that Article 50 would be delayed. That's something, again, that's been talked about in Westminster. It seems to be the letters have been written. Brussels is waiting to accept that. Do you think that's where this is heading next? Because regardless of whether it's an election or a referendum or whatever, it's looking increasingly likely Brexit is not going to happen on the 29th of March. It's almost certain that it won't happen on the 29th of March. The discussion is about whether you have a shorter extension, maybe till the end of June or, or 1st of July, that they call a technical extension. It would allow the UK potentially, if it's close to doing to ratifying a deal and needs a bit more time to, to have that, it doesn't really give you the space to do a proper negotiation. And once you get past July 1st, then there's the European election issue. The new parliament is constituted. A lot of officials here are worried that if you don't send British MEPs to that parliament while Britain is still a member, you basically undercut its legitimacy. It would be illegally constituted and all its decisions would be illegal too. So it's a serious issue. People are trying to think of ways around it. I suspect they will find some. And if that is possible, then a longer extension might be appealing to some member states and leaders. I think the worst thing for them would be being dragged back to Brussels every two to three months for another special summit on Brexit where there's no real sign of a way forward. The Brits are constantly asking for further extensions and it's just an unholy mess. I think they would prefer probably to go long and maybe to the end of the year to allow for elections, a referendum or some kind of different process in the UK to try and marshal a majority for a deal. And just one final point, there's the question of 
do the member states actually want the UK back in the club? It's clear from this recent European Court of Justice ruling that it would be very hard, impossible, frankly, to for the EU to stop the UK revoking Article 50 and, and staying as a member. But there are quite a few officials and diplomats who uh, have second thoughts about whether they want to bring the a divided UK with this poisonous debate into the EU and in a way that might actually hobble its ability to function in different areas because the UK would constantly be referring back to its trouble at home as an excuse not to take decisions or move ahead or integrate further in, in, in specific areas. So it, it is a interesting debate. Um, it's far from clear, even within governments, that there's a kind of settled view, but it's certainly something that's feeding in to the next few weeks over whether you want to give concessions or whether you don't want to give concessions, whether you go long or short, whether you want to encourage Remainers, it's certainly a factor. And so what happens next? Well, we're not going to try and give you any answers specifically, but let's have a look at least what it's going to mean for the Conservative Party. As we know, Theresa May is not going anywhere, nor is her government. But finding a Brexit deal that is amenable to her whole party looks pretty impossible. If the European research groups of Brexit-supporting MPs aren't in any mood to compromise, so if the PM wants to get her deal through, she's going to have to reach out. And that is not exactly a task that she is well-suited to. So, Laura Hughes, following the meaningful vote on Tuesday, Theresa May told the House of Commons that she was now going to speak to parliamentarians of all sorts to try and see what they find wrong with her deal and what they would accept. That's the SNP, the Green Party, the Lib Dems and Labour, except Jeremy Corbyn has refused to engage until she, quote, takes no deal off the table, whatever that means. Yeah, and the reports that we're getting of the the meetings that the PM's been having is that she hasn't really said anything particularly new. She's in listening mode, which is incredibly frustrating for a lot of MPs who have articulated their views (laughs) quite loudly over the last few months. There will be no surprises for the PM when she meets these MPs. The only really new thing that I can gather is that she's put this document in front of those who want a second referendum saying that the government's own guidelines state that it will take a year to have another referendum so she's tried to kill that idea today but otherwise there hasn't been huge amount of movement really and she's having various different conversations depending on the audience so she's trying to reassure the ERG that a no deal still on the table not joining a customs union or staying in a customs union is one of her red lines but with the others, she's trying to portray, you know, the image of her as someone that is, is listening and could, could come to some kind of compromise. The problem that she's got, Robert, is that she's ruled out not having a, a full customs union. She's ruled out a second referendum. She's ruled out the single market. So she's not changing anything. So her plan B, her plan Z is exactly the same as her plan A. So what really is the point of doing these talks apart from a stalling tactic? Ah, you spotted her master plan, so <laughs> Until she can just eventually hope that by bringing her deal back with a new name and a bit of varnishing on the edges that MPs will be worried enough by the impending doom of no deal to vote for it. But that, again, seems to be misreading the mood of the House of Commons. Yeah, I mean, I think what you have to think about 
is that what is going on here is a massive game of chicken with all of the different sides assuming that the other side is going to blink first. You have the Brexit hardliners who think if they can hang tough, the other side will blink. First of all, they think the European Union will blink. Then they think other members of the Conservative Party will blink. You have all of the different Remain or soft Brexit groups waiting for somebody else to blink so that their proposal can be the one that becomes the main challenger to Mrs May's deal. You have Mrs May believing that all the other sides and particularly the Labour MPs who don't want no deal will blink when we get too close to it. And you have Jeremy Corbyn who thinks that, I'm not quite sure who he thinks will blink, but the point is he doesn't care and neither do the no dealers because they're quite happy with the crash. And so this is the the problem with this game of chicken is there are some people playing it who don't mind the crash at the end. Because Jeremy Corbyn's view is he wants maximum chaos because he thinks more chaos means more likely to a general election and he's convinced that he's going to win that general election and no matter what happens on the other side, but Labour can pick up the pieces and in fact, he probably does want Brexit to have happened by that point because as we know, he is a Brexiter. I mean, I think let's try and be slightly generous to Jeremy Corbyn, which isn't a position we often take on this podcast. He does not want to deliver Theresa May's Brexit and share any degree of culpability to it. He doesn't want his own MPs to help her. Therefore, he is trying to stop them from doing what Mrs May believes they will ultimately do, which is backing her deal. So he is stalling and stalling and stalling. And he is looking for chinks of light between Mrs May her Brexit hardliners and the DUP. And the premise of making her take no deal off the table is that she might enrage one of those groups far enough that they might not support her in a confidence vote. She's treading an incredibly narrow pathway with sort of just a sheer drop on either side. And his trick is to try and divert her into the drop. So there is a political strategy to what he's doing, even if it isn't fabulously noble. So one thing that Theresa May has to be very aware of, Laura, is trying to keep the Conservative Party together here because pretty much soon after the meaningful vote, I saw a cabinet Brexiter who essentially said, well, this means a softer Brexit and that's going to mean a split in the Conservative Party because the only thing, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, that could really garner a majority across the House of Commons is some form of customs union. And for the members of the European Research Group who are the infamous gang of hardline Brexiters, striking free trade deals is the biggest opportunity, as they see it, of leaving the EU. And if you have a customs union, that essentially means no free trade deals. So in that case, if Theresa May does go down that path, then what do they do? They don't want to go along with it. So they either have to break away or bring down the government, which in a sense, either way, is a split in the Conservative Party. Yeah, people are, are really taking this threat seriously and using really dramatic language, which actually I don't think is being overplayed because you could have a situation in which the ERG splits. So you'll have a group of them accepting, we played our cards, we've played the game, and you know what, actually, we to accept and live with this. And then you'll have the diehards who are prepared to go down with the Brexit ship and who could even abstain or vote against non-Brexit related government business. That would be huge. And who knows what the DUP will do. So you also have the dynamic of the local party membership, which is really quite Eurosceptic. And if they feel as though they're not getting the Brexit that they voted for, what does that mean for the future of the Conservative Party? There are genuinely MPs who have been saying to me over the last few days, I don't know if I will be in this party in a few months' time. That is how serious I think it could get. Because when we look within the ERG, Robert, I think there's about 20 to 40 absolute irreconcilables who, even if you got 
the best unilateral exit mechanism from the Irish border backstop would still not accept this deal. They're not happy about the money. They're not happy about the lack of free trade deal. And in fact, they don't really want to do any deal with Brussels at all. They just want to leave. And for those people, there's no point trying to negotiate with them. There are, as Laura said, people who would come round uh, to some sort of deal. And I think that actually includes Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example. I could see a deal he would vote for. But when you're dealing with people with that kind of view, it's hard to see how Theresa May can do anything at this stage. Well, I don't think she is trying to deal with them is the truth of it. I think she's assumed they're gone unless they think Brexit is in genuine jeopardy. But I do think this is where Jeremy Corbyn has missed quite an important trick, which is that if he could get a Brexit built around, say, the customs union, as a permanent membership of the customs union, he can actually do enormous damage to the Conservative Party. He can claim a victory. He can prevent no deal. He can say he's saved manufacturing industry. He's honoured the will of the people while softening Brexit. And he's done enormous damage to the Conservative Party. This seems to me to be, for someone who doesn't much care about Brexit, a huge win. So... If we go down this softer Brexit path, which I think is a real possibility in the next few weeks, if Theresa May decides to do that, then she'll be in real trouble. But there is a chance, Robert, that Parliament might force her hand. And there's various plans going around at the moment, notably by Nick Bowes, who's a former Conservative minister, to hand control of this process from the executive to the legislature and let MPs decide what happens next. If MPs rallied around the customs union option, Theresa May might find herself in a situation where she's got no option but to deliver it. Well, I think this is quite an interesting point. I think both Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May have one common line, which is that while they don't want to do certain things, they won't be tremendously upset if someone else does it for them. So although I don't think Theresa May can be seen to support the customs union, were Parliament to force it upon her, she can sort of shrug her shoulders and go, well, look, I didn't want to do this, but those pesky MPs made me. And I think Corbyn similarly at some point will be in a place where he didn't want to do this, but his own backbenchers rebelled and this had to happen. I think the problem for Theresa May is initiating. If something is done to her and she's forced to accept something by Parliament, that I think is a different matter. And I think if you think about the leaked text of Philip Hammond and Greg Clark and Stephen Barclay's phone call with businessmen, you essentially had Philip Hammond admitting that he was rather hoping Parliament could take control of this and solve this problem for them because they can't solve it themselves. So this is the other thing, Laura, which is the prospect of no deal. And of course, all the while, every day that something doesn't happen, leaving the EU without a deal on the 29th of March becomes more likely. But what we do know, and this is what Philip Hammond said in this phone call to business leaders, is Parliament will not accept no deal. How Parliament asserts that is something we still don't quite know. And another thing that's been talked about this week is that there are a gang of hardcore Remainers in the Conservative Party. There's not many of them, but there might just be enough who could abstain in a future confidence motion and end their own careers, but also bring down the government and spill into a general election which they hope would avoid a no-deal outcome, again, splitting the Conservative Party. Yeah, this is the Nick Bowles bill that if it was heard and voted through would require the government prime minister you know to extend article 50 if she hasn't agreed a deal by the end of february that's really significant if you're delaying article 50 you're you're in effect delaying brexit for as long as we need to secure a deal and who knows i'm sure the eu would allow that to continue for quite some time the nick bowles claims does have a majority in the house of commons and he's been you know 
coming out talking to the BBC today saying that he believes ministers would resign from government if they were whipped into voting against his bill if it were to be heard in the Commons. So that could be a really huge moment. It's it's not necessarily removing no deal because, of course, if you don't have an alternative, then you do have no deal under Article 50. So the real question is, can Parliament not only block a no deal, can they force the government's hand into extending Article 50? I do think that we are in an incredible bind, partly because of Theresa May's strategy, which I understand, of trying to give two different messages to two different groups. The strategy of saying to the Brexit hardliners, you could lose Brexit, and the strategy of saying to everybody else, you could get no deal, seemed quite clever for a while. But as we've now discovered, it's a bit of a failure. And the problem is it sends conflicting messages also to the European Union. If you think about the fundamental issue of the backstop, you know, the backstop is only any use if you get it. So as long as the European Union thinks that no deal is not really an option, it has no incentive to make any meaningful concessions on this. And this is where I do think the hardliners have a point which is if we get terribly close to March 29th and it really looks like the backstop is not going to happen, well, then they have to ask themselves, why are we insisting on this? It's going to deliver the opposite of what we're after. It's the question about Mrs May is that she's insisted throughout most of this process that no deal is better than a bad deal and continues to insist that her deal is not a bad deal. But does she really believe that? There are certainly some Conservative MPs who do believe that and they pop up on newspaper opinion pages making that case. But I think there is a general sense the Prime Minister probably doesn't believe that. Much of her cabinet certainly don't believe that. Um, I've tended to the view, having watched Mrs May for several years, that one shouldn't take very much that she says terribly literally. I think there are many things she believes when she says them, but she's prepared to stop believing them if political expediency requires her to do so. So finally, Laura, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see these cross-party talks continue. As you said, I don't think we'll expect any great results to yield from that. There may be something that emerges from Brussels to try and improve her deal. And we now know that on the 29th of January, we're going to go back to voting in the House of Commons. What's going to happen then? I really don't know. And I don't think the PM's going to back down until she has to on no deal. I think Robert's right that the argument that the DUP were really making in their meetings with the PM is that she has to keep it on the table in order to put pressure on the EU. That point is really vital. And I understand why Jeremy Corbyn is saying it, but there is also some political nous into keeping it on the table. So I think that could be the thing that changes. We might see Article 50 extended, but I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, I was talking to a friend who's involved in doing probability tables on soccer leagues and he pointed out to me that when you look at a soccer tournament and the likelihood of a team winning even the absolute favorites their probability of winning at the start of the contest is is never much more than seven percent eight percent nine percent because there's so many hurdles to get through and i think the honest way to look at what's going to happen is to say there are several probabilities none of them at the moment have more than a ten percent chance of happening we have to get through certain things and anybody who says with any conviction this is what's going to happen simply does not know what they are talking about because nobody knows which probability is going to emerge as the main one. And I think that probably includes the Prime Minister. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Robert and Laura for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked this podcast, do find some more FT journalism by subscribing, which you can find more details at at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.